Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I am Richt. Hello to those online. You know, my wife and I have been coming here to Grace for 24 years. And uh, just so excited to be able to occasionally hear from the front, bring the Word of God. I want to talk about uh, happiness and sadness. Uh, happiness is something that we experience normally in the Christian life. We have the joy of the Lord, and we have the joy of being together. We have the joy of enjoying the blessings that God gives to us. But sadness, I want to suggest to you, is also a normal part of the Christian life. Now, we don't think of that too much. Sometimes we try to avoid it, or sometimes maybe on Sunday mornings we have sadness hanging in the backdrop of our life, but we come here and do this. But I can assure you that people here in the pews uh, have sadness in their life, and maybe sometimes we don't show it because we don't, you know, want to burden other people with it. Or if you're like me, you're Scandinavian and you don't show that stuff. Recently, sadness came into our life. Uh, my mom passed away this last year in January, and it was hard. She was uh, 88 years old in reasonably good health. We weren't expecting that, although when you're 88, anything can happen. Someone said to me when we were down there in Naples, Florida, where she lived, that, oh yeah, I saw your mom the day before she passed away. And I said to her that she doesn't look so well. Tootie, you don't look so well. You should go see the nurse. And at the retirement center where she lived, uh, there was a nurse on duty. Her nickname was Tootie, T-U-D-Y. Well, guess what Tootie did? Instead of going to see the nurse, she hopped in her Toyota and toured uh, Naples, Florida for a couple of hours. And then she went home and went to bed and never woke up that we know of. Never rang that little bell that you have to check in with uh, each morning at the retirement center. And so uh, it was hard for us. Uh, and I didn't always know how to deal with it. My dad passed away a long time ago, and now mom, and suddenly I'm alone. <laughs> I mean, I have my wife, I have my family, I have you folks and so forth, but gosh, when you lose a parent, that has happened to many of you, not all. Folks, the older you get, the more this kind of thing happens to you. So if you're a young people, maybe, uh, maybe, just maybe, life has been a bit pain-free, but uh, believe me, it's coming, and it's here in this room. Some people had a lot worse than my mom. She didn't suffer down the stretch. I want to tell you about one such person. Her name is Kate Bowler. Kate had a successful student career coming up through the ranks as an undergrad and a graduate student. And she went to uh, grad school to get her PhD at uh, Duke University. And then she became a professor at Duke Divinity School. And I think we have a photo of Kate. Uh, there she is. And she joined a group of world-class scholars at, uh, at Duke and is very proud of that. And uh, so she writes, uh, looking back, she says, I was just sailing along, married in my 20s, a baby in my 30s. I won a job at my alma mater straight out of graduate school, her alma mater being Duke. So she was so excited. Well, then she got the news, the sad news. Stage four cancer. She'd gone in, she'd had a lot of stomach pain and the doctor delivered the news. Kate has a national platform. She wrote 
an article in the New York Times. This is what it said. I did the things you might expect of someone whose world has suddenly become very small. I sank to my knees and cried. I called my husband at our home nearby. I waited until he arrived so we could wrap our arms around each other and say the things that must be said. I have loved you forever. I am so grateful for our life together. Please take care of our son. Then he, my husband, walked me from my office to the hospital to start what was left of my new life. Out of that experience, Kate wrote three books and became host of the popular podcast, Everything Happens, which is sponsored by Duke University and North Carolina Public Radio. I'd recommend that podcast to you. It's really well done. Some of you have received this kind of news. It's the gut punch. It's suddenly life has been reframed. It's a shock to the system. It's a jolt to the head. Pick your metaphor. It just hits you broadside. In our passage today, Jesus receives some alarming news. A close friend has fallen sick and is near death. And I wonder how he is going to handle it. Let's pray. Lord, I hate talking about sadness because I'm so used to talking about the joy of the Lord. But it's in the Bible. <laughs> and it's in our congregation. It's sadness is in our hearts. Lord, would you help us to be realistic about that just as you are? Would you give us wisdom and grace today and as we look kind of a sad passage, would you give us courage to face sadness in our lives and to help those around us who are experiencing sadness, discouragement, and disappointment. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, we're still in the Gospel of John. John 11, one through 16, this is the story of Lazarus. And you can follow along in your Bible if you have that or look on the screen. Here's the text. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, now we have a, a little parenthetical statement. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. The bad news. Bethany is a village maybe a mile or two east of Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure where it was located in the ancient world, but very close proximity to Jerusalem. And Jesus, he's off doing other things. He's maybe 20 or 25 miles away. Scholars aren't exactly sure where he is right now. Maybe he's on the other side of the Jordan, what's called Transjordan, if you read the literature. So he's not in the vicinity. Verse 2 tells us which Mary this is. So if you read through the Gospels, of course, you're probably getting confused sometimes. Is it Mary Magdalene? Is it um, uh, Mary here of Bethany? Is it Mary, the mother of Jesus? There are several Marys. This is the one, the text tells us, who, 
pours perfume on Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. John mentions that here, but he doesn't actually tell the story until chapter 12. We're in chapter 11. So that story is still coming, but apparently the early church kind of knew this story of this Mary who anointed Jesus for his coming burial. And so the story now of Lazarus and the story of Jesus are brought together by Mary. And Lazarus becomes a kind of a foreshadow, a precursor of the life of Jesus. So we can learn something about who Jesus is by digging a little bit today into the story of Lazarus. Verse three, notice the discreet and delicate language that's used here. Lord, the one you love is sick. Notice what they don't say through this messenger. They don't say, hey, Lazarus is sick. We know you love him. Would you come back ASAP and uh, get the job done? It's more suggestive. There's an implication here. Lord, the one you love is sick. As if to say, <laughs> we're reminding you of your connection with Lazarus and we know that you'll know the right thing to do and would you please come back and heal him? That's the unspoken word in the word here. That's the unspoken word given to the messenger and the messenger arrives. And this delicate, respectful request, Lord, the one you love is sick. You'll know what to do. I love how subtle this is. The word love here, phileo, the Greek phileo, approve of, Lord, the one you approve of, the one that you're friends with, the one you're so fond of is sick. Nothing more. No explicit request, just an implicit one. <laughs> I love this prayer. This is a prayer. Lord, the one you love is sick with the implication being you'll know what to do. And I'd like to ask you to think of someone in your life who is sick or who is troubled, who is going through tragedy, who's going through difficulty. Who is that person? For some of you, there's a, probably a lot of them. And now that I'm a little older, it seems like there are more than there used to be. But I'm sure each of us has at least one person that we know is sick. And I'd like you to close your eyes right now and think of that person. And I'm gonna give you an instruction here. And we're gonna pray for this one who's sick. So I will demonstrate. Lord, I'm thinking of my friend Eric. The one you love is sick. You'll know what to do. Go ahead and pray that prayer in your heart. Think of a person, name a person in your heart, and then say to the Lord, the one you love is sick. You'll know what to do. Let's take a moment and do that now. Amen. I want to tell you, the Lord has heard you this morning.
when you said to him, the one you love is sick. As we move in on our passage, verse four, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. <laughs> Never can figure out this Jesus guy. He's always doing the unexpected. But let's remember that Mary and Martha are sisters here. They live in Bethany. Lazarus either lives with them or lives nearby, but they're a family and they live uh, near Jerusalem together. And Jesus, he's off someplace. So we learn in verse four that Lazarus is sick, but he's not yet dead. And then in verse four, this sickness will serve a specific purpose, and that is to glorify God. Well, how could sickness glorify God? Yes, there might be a happy ending to this story, but let's pause for a moment and camp in the sickness. How could that glorify God? Well, let's zoom out, and I want to suggest to you that all of life is worship. Folks, that's why you're here on earth. You're here to worship and to share the one that you worship with others. If you want to know what your purpose in life is, it's to worship God. And that will always be your purpose on into eternity. And if you think that that's boring, if you think worship in eternity is going to be boring, think of your best moment here on earth, worshiping the Lord Jesus, being in his presence with the saints, with the people of God, and then project that ahead a thousand times better. Maximize it. And think to yourself, the worship that we conduct here when we're together with the band and so forth, it's kind of a rehearsal of what's to come so that all of life is worship. And if you wonder who you are in this life, in a culture that's obsessed with identity, our identity is in Jesus. That's the heart, soul of our identity. All of life is worship so that even sickness can serve a specific purpose. Giving is worship. And folks, even death can be worship. Even death can be worship as we are thankful to the one who gave us life. Death is a culmination of a life of worship. Have you ever really been to a Christian funeral, a Christian service, a Christian service that was really Christian? There was both sadness and hope, both at the same time. And you hear people at Christian funerals thanking God for this person. And if you knew the person, you might say to yourself, and they were thankful as well for a life well lived, a life lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a song that we sometimes sing. It's called 10,000 Reasons. It goes like this. And on that day when my strength is failing, look at this hair here. It's probably coming for me quicker than a lot of you. <laughs> The end draws near and my time has come. Still, my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. We praise God now in all of life. All of life is worship. Even death is worship. And then worship will continue on in eternity, briefly interrupted, we might say, by death. Verse four, though, this particular sickness will not end in death. This particular, 
particular incident will not end in death, we learn. But others will. Others will. And we ask ourselves, what purpose do tragedy and death serve? Why does this happen? Why is there so much trouble in the world? Can't God just snap his fingers and do something about it? And I guess the answer is that we don't always know. Sometimes there's tragedy. In a broken world, that happens. There is suicide, car crashes, terrorist attacks, COVID deaths, shootings, overdoses. They all happen for a purpose and we may not be privy to what that purpose is. We may not have access to that information. God has vast amounts of knowledge that we will never touch. He knows, but folks, we may not know. It can be disappointing. It can be frustrating. Now, every once in a while, we get a glimpse into things. We look in the rearview mirror and we go, oh, that's why that happened. I would say that's more the exception than the rule. Most of the time, we just don't know why these things happen or why they are happening. My dad died when he was uh, 58 years old and I was in my 30s. That was a long time ago, 30 years ago. And my mom sat me down at a restaurant and she looked me in the eye and she said, why did your God allow him to die? I don't know. I said, I don't know. She said, he was a good man. He helped people. He helped young people. He was a talent coach. We come from a musical family so my dad was always helping young singers and performers do their thing. And he was a school teacher. He served people. And she goes, there's a lot of rotten people out there. They're having a good life right now, but your dad is dead. Why did your God allow that to happen? I said, I don't know, but I do know one thing, that God is trustworthy, and I trust in the character of God to have done the right thing, or to have allowed the right thing. Let me suggest this principle to you. We may not know God's reasons, but we know God's character. We may not know God's reasons, but we know God's character. And folks, I have a question for you today, for you to ponder. Do we, as a congregation, to each of us individually, do we trust in the character of God? Friends, I want to trust in the God who created me, who gave me life, who called me to himself, who died for my sins, who gives me a truckload of blessings, promised me eternal life. That's the God I want to trust in. But I may not know all the reasons that stuff happens. And kind of coming to some peace with that can, weirdly, it can resolve a lot of tension in our lives to say, well, I'm, I don't know, and that's normal. That's okay. That's part of the Christian life. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So Jesus is really close to this family. He's fond of this family. He probably has meals with this family. They live near Jerusalem, so he's there for festivals. He sees them often. So when this news came to him, it would be pretty traumatic. And we'll hear more about that next week. But I can imagine this hit him like a gut punch as well. And so, of course, he's going to come right away. He feels close to them. He feels the request to come and do something about Lazarus. 
Instead, he stays away for two more days. That doesn't make sense. You know what? I've been reading the Gospels for 45 years now, and I still can't figure out Jesus sometimes. He does the unexpected. I'll be reading along, and I go, you can't do that. You're Jesus. And here, I kind of want to say to him, well, you can't do that. You can't ignore these people who are hurting right now. You need to go to them. You're Jesus after all. You're the one who models this. You set the standard for this. Instead, he stays away for two more days. And I would say, well, why not heal from a distance? Why not wave your hand? Wave your magic wand. That's what you did in John 4. A man came to you and said, my son is near death. And Jesus said, go home. Your son will be well. Why not do that here? For some reason, he doesn't. It almost seems a little cold, yet we know he loves this family. Well, folks, Jesus' timing is not Mary, Martha's, and Lazarus's timing, especially Lazarus. His timing is not theirs. Jesus is on a different clock. Jesus is on a different calendar. There's lots of examples of this in Scripture. You think back to the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, they're promised a son. Guess how old Abraham was when he's promised a son, he and Sarah? He's around uh, 70 or 75 years old, and you can almost hear Abraham going, right, that better happen soon. I'm 75. Well, it didn't happen very soon. There's a 25-year gap between that first announcement from God and when Isaac is finally born into the family of Abraham and Sarah. Or Israel in bondage in Egypt. Were they there for 10 years? Hey, you're going to be exiled into Egypt. You're going to be there 10 years of suffering. No, it's not 20 either. It's not 50. It's not 100. It's 400 years they suffer in Egypt in bondage. Now, God... Why? This is your chosen people. Why would you send them there? Eh, we don't know exactly. There's a few clues in Scripture. I won't go into those right now. But God's timing is, it's an oddity to us at times. The Scripture says in 1 Peter 3, with God a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. That's a different calendar. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. I hang out with a lot of college students in my life. It's a good job that I have in graduate students and I go around the country and I talk with them. And some of them, they measure God by culture. They learn about timing and they learn about justice and they learn about healing and they learn about service and culture. And then they go to God and say, you're not measuring yourself up to this standard. And so they reject God. I guess I want to say to them, you know, God sets the standard here. Let's listen to him. Let's get on his calendar. Let's be open to his timing. Let's submit ourselves to how he's doing his business and not expect the God of the universe who created all this to submit himself to our expectations. That's not how it works. Folks, Jesus was never in a hurry. There's a really good book called The Unhurried Life written by an author I really like, Alan Fadling. Here's what Fadling says. Jesus was engaged and active, but unanxious and unhurried. Wow, that would be weird in this culture, an unhurried person. A lot of us take a kind of pride in being hurried and harried all the time. 
Fadling goes on to say, God himself isn't in a hurry because he's seeking to do quality work. God is here to do it right. And he's gonna do it in his timing. If we could learn to accommodate ourselves to that, that could be a huge step of discipleship for many of us. Recently, Sharon and I were driving out on 694 and we were exiting at Rice Street. We were headed east and so there's an ambulance behind me. I realized at the last second. So fortunately, I'm going up the exit ramp. Guess what? The ambulance follows me. And as we get on the ramp, the ambulance honks on the horn and scared me. And that ramp, if any of you know that ramp, that exit ramp, it's really narrow. I had no place to go in this ambulance. The lights are going around, laying on the horn, because they were in such a hurry to go help someone in need. I don't doubt that. But it did scare me, and I don't know what they expected me to do, but folks, Jesus, had he been driving that ambulance, would never have been in a hurry. He'd have gone on his time. I'm very confident about that. So principle number two then, God's timing is different than ours. It might seem obvious from this passage, but my wife sometimes calls me the master of the obvious. God's timing is different than ours. And I want to ask you the question then, do you trust in God's timing? Are you willing to submit yourself to the calendar, to the clock that God is on? I want that for myself. I find that hard to do. I want God to show up and wave his wand. I want instant gratification from the Lord of the universe. And he often doesn't give it. Am I okay with that? And are you okay with that? Are we okay with that as a church? God's timing is different than ours. Are we willing to trust in God's timing? Folks, God will always heal. If you're a believer in Jesus, you will always be healed. There's 100% healing for the Christian. It's just a matter of timing. It's either gonna happen here in this life, which it sometimes does, or it's gonna happen in the next life. It's simply a matter of timing. God's healing process sometimes is briefly interrupted by death, and then it goes on into eternity. God will always heal, never fear that. Maybe we need a little bit more of an eternal perspective on this life and our troubles and these healings that we want to see happen. When we can't find a job or can't sell a house or don't like what's happening at church, Jesus knows, he watches, he cares, he loves you and me. And therefore, he will wait two more days even when things seem urgent to us. Or he may wait a thousand years. It's all the same to him. In verse seven, Jesus says to his disciples, okay, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to Bethany. But rabbi, they say, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. This was attempted murder. And yet you were going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So here we see Jesus' commitment to this family. He's willing to go back to the place where there was 
an attempt made on his life where the Jews wanted to stone him. He's willing to go back and walk through that. And then he reminds his disciples, hey, there's daylight here. I need to do this while there's daylight. Darkness is coming. While we're in the daylight, let's get this job done because soon my hour is coming, a phrase we've heard throughout John. And when he's gone, there will be darkness and this healing won't take place. Verse 11 then, after he has said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going there to wake him up. A little bit of a euphemism, I'd say. He's fallen asleep. Well, the disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. In other words, that we may die with Jesus at the hands of the religious establishment. After Jesus speaks of the death of Lazarus in this uh, small metaphor <laughs> that he's fallen asleep, the disciples don't understand. Now he repeats it really plainly. Lazarus is dead. Unlike in the Princess Bride movie, Lazarus is not mostly dead because there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive, but in fact, Lazarus is all dead. There's a kind of finality to that. He's done with the metaphor. He's done with this roundabout way of saying it. No, Lazarus is dead. Verse 15 then, for your sake, I'm glad, actually glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So this awakening of Lazarus will be a sign to the disciples to strengthen their faith. They are the future of the world Everything rides on their belief in Jesus. So we're getting a glimpse now into why Jesus waited two more days so that he could go and awaken Lazarus, which would be a sign to the disciples. So think about this decision-making process Jesus goes through. He gets this shocking, jolting news from this courier who says, the one you love is sick and it's Lazarus. And so he decides to stay instead of go. And he's doing it for a strategic reason. He's investing in these 12 disciples. He knows that his personal feelings at this point in his ministry cannot trump, cannot override his commitment to these 12 here. In fact, the two are going to go together. He's going to strategically use this tragic event to build up the faith of the 12 disciples so that, may I suggest, may I remind you, so that you and I can be sitting here in these pews today these chairs today. <laughs> the disciples became the leaders of the early church and the early church uh, became the church throughout the ages and here we are, one of the latest versions of that. Jesus invested in you that day. He invested in me that day by building up the faith of the disciples and not just quickly following his feelings of Grief, as important as they are. Folks, death was introduced into the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 16, 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, 
but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. You will experience spiritual death as you're separated from me. You'll experience physical death, and that will go on into all humanity. Of course, you know that it isn't just the fruit, right? This is a little aside. It's not just the fruit that's at issue here. It's the command not to touch this particular tree that they disobey. And death is introduced then into humanity. But Jesus, praise God, has defeated death. Verse 11, he tells the disciples that he's going back to Bethany to wake up Lazarus. Yes, there will be a death. There will be a death. And then there will be dare we say, three days in the grave. Hmm. Maybe four. And then there will be, well, come back next week and you'll hear the ending to the story. But I want to suggest to you that the Bible is realistic about death and sorrow and sadness and tragedy. The Bible brings together these two ideas of sadness and hope. Sadness and hope that we embrace the sadness, that it's normal in the Christian life to feel sad. It's okay. Jesus felt sad. God feels sad and disappointed. We can and should as well. When tragedy comes, let's not gloss over it. Let's not walk into the church going like this and pretending it isn't there. The joy of the Lord is great, and when we're together, I feel it. <laughs> I'm not denying that. I don't want to just be a killjoy here, but I am saying that sadness is a normal part of who we are. It's a normal part of discipleship, of following Jesus. Following Jesus into this little village here near Jerusalem, Bethany, into the heart of the matter, back to Lazarus. But there is also hope Kate Bowler, that I mentioned earlier, urges us in her books and podcasts to be realistic about suffering and death. She doesn't want us Christians to just gloss over it and pretend it isn't there. So she writes, you can be afraid and brave all at once. We're the people who know that beauty and love and truth can still grow out of the hard, cold ground. That's the ambiguity of death. The ambiguity is a both and. It's sadness and hope. Let us grieve with those who grieve. Let us mourn with those who mourn. Let us stop and go before the Lord and bring that before him. And then let us know there is hope on the other side of it. There's hope in it, actually. It's both and. And if we, I think if we get on either side of the equation here, too much, we're missing out on really what it means to be human in God's sight. If I can put it that strongly. <laughs> I'm gonna cry when I say this, but I remember meeting Kate Bowler when she was 19 years old at McAllister College, just down the street here. She was a brilliant young religion major I met her in the chapel one day. She said hi to me, and we had an instant bond. She spent some time in our home in St. Paul when we lived over there in this uh, Renaissance discipleship group. I think we have a, oh, there's Kate, upper left, and there's me, bottom right. That was before I dyed my hair gray, actually. And uh, there's Kate. Uh, I remember a couple times when I was 
uh, leading the band here. She came and sang on the worship team here at Grace Church. I remember one night, <laughs> she called me at, uh, it had to be 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night, and my phone rang, and I saw that it was Kate, so I picked it up. She said, hey, I know it's late, I'm sorry, but I'm writing a paper on the gender of God, and it's due tomorrow at McAllister, could you help me? And the answer is yes. I don't care what hour of the night you call me. I'm picking up the phone. And then she married Tobin Penner instead of that other guy. And so I got my way on that one. She married Tobin instead of that other guy. I was so happy. And then I remember she called me from Yale University when she was doing her master's. And she wondered why her theology, her biblical theology that she was so committed to her whole life was being excluded from the program there at Yale. I said, Kate, it's time to put shields up and make it through this class and graduate. Mm. And then she landed her dream job at Duke University, the Divinity School there, after getting her PhD at Duke. And then she became a best-selling author and national podcast host. And then she got stage four cancer and she's in remission, praise God. Lord, the one you love is sick. Her name is Kate. I love her as you do. To this day, Kate is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Her gut punch came five years ago when she was 35 years old. Now she's 40. Kate is... Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all rolled up into one, beloved by Jesus, and she is a lover of Jesus. I can tell you that. I believe, folks, that there is a purpose in suffering, but I don't know what it is. I can't, I can't look at the circumstance. I can't look at the situation. I can't probe into every little piece of it. I can't look back, and I don't think you can either, and figure out why this happened. Every once in a while we get a glimpse, praise God, but often we don't. That's where we have to trust in the character and the timing of God. So as we close, these, these three items for you to, to consider this week. Do you trust in the character of God? When there aren't explanations, there is an explanation, and the explanation is the character of God and who he is, the one who died for us, who gave us life, who gives us blessings, who gives us each other, and yes, allows us to go through sadness and sorrow, tragedy. Do you trust in the character of God? And then secondly, do you trust in the timing of God? He's on a different calendar than we are. Thirdly, do you look upon death, do you look upon tragedy with both sadness and hope? Is it both for you? You know, Scandinavians like myself, we kind of skip over the sadness part. And I just feel like the Lord has been calling me these last years and now with the death of my mom to sit in that and to grieve and to take time to go before the Lord and put it out there for him and see what he will do with that see what he will do with that. And that is the realistic, biblical picture that we are given as 
Christians. Well, next week we'll find out that this sickness doesn't end in death, just as Jesus promised. Of course, Pastor Bob gave me the hard passage. He gave me the death passage. He's coming back next week to talk about how this sickness will not end. In, this particular one doesn't end in death. For now, let's just worship God even in death. We have the death passage this week. This is perfect. We're experiencing the sadness this week. And it's real. And it's good. It's part of the normal Christian life. But let's worship God even in this tragedy. Amen. Lord God. Whew. This was a hard one. Thankful that it was a hard one for you before it ever became hard for us. Thankful that you empathize with our pain. That you became a man. Um, you got your feet dirty, your hands dirty. You walked this earth as a man. And now you walk it with us now by your spirit. Oh, that is such good news. Amen.